Part 2, Chapter 7 of Home Education Series, Volume 1, Home Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Home Education Series, Volume 1, Home Education, by Charlotte Mason. Part 2, Chapter 7. The Child Gets Knowledge by Means of His Senses. Read by Julia Ward. Nature's Teaching. Watch a child standing at gaze at some sight new to him, a plow at work, for instance, and you will see he is as naturally occupied as is a babe at the breast. He is, in fact, taking in the intellectual food which the working faculty of his brain at this period requires. In his early years, the child is all eyes. He observes, or, more truly, he perceives, calling sight, touch, taste, smell, and hearing to his aid, that he may learn all that is discoverable by him about every new thing that comes under his notice. Everybody knows how a baby fumbles with soft little fingers, and carries to his mouth, and bangs that it may produce what sound there is in it, the spoon or doll, which supercilious grown-up people give him to keep him quiet. The child is at his lessons and is learning all about it at a rate utterly surprising to the physiologist, who considers how much is implied in the act of seeing, for instance. That to the infant, as to the blind adult restored to sight, there is at first no difference between a flat picture and a solid body. That the ideas of form and solidity are not obtained by sight at all, but are the judgments of experience. Then think of the vague passes in the air the little fist makes before it lays hold of the object of desire, and you see how he learns the whereabouts of things, having as yet no idea of direction. And why does he cry for the moon? Why does he crave equally a horse or a housefly as an appropriate plaything? Because far and near, large and small, are ideas he has yet to grasp. The child has truly a great deal to do before he is in a condition to believe his own eyes. But nature teaches so gently, so gradually, so persistently, that he is never overdone, but goes on gathering little stores of knowledge about whatever comes before him. And this is the process the child should continue for the first few years of his life. Now is the storing time, which should be spent in laying up images of things familiar, by and by, he will have to conceive of things he has never seen. How can he do it except by comparison with things he has seen and knows? By and by, he will be called upon to reflect, understand, reason. What material will he have unless he has a magazine of facts to go upon? The child who has been made to observe how high in the heavens the sun is at noon on a summer's day, how low at noon on a day in midwinter, is able to conceive of the great heat of the tropics under a vertical sun, and to understand that the climate of a place depends greatly upon the mean height the sun reaches above the horizon. Overpressure. A great deal has been said lately about the danger of overpressure, of requiring too much mental work from a child of tender years. The danger exists, but lies not in giving the child too much, but in giving him the wrong thing to do, the sort of work for which the present state of his mental development does not fit him. 
Who expects a boy in petticoats to lift half a hundredweight, but give the child work that nature intended for him, and the quantity he can get through with ease is practically unlimited? Who ever saw a child tired of seeing, of examining in his own way unfamiliar things? This is the sort of mental nourishment for which he has an unbounded appetite, because it is that food of the mind on which, for the present, he is meant to grow. Object Lessons Now, how far is this craving for natural sustenance met? In infant and kindergarten schools, by the object lesson, which is good so far as it goes, but is sometimes like that bean a day on which the Frenchman fed his horse. The child at home has more new things brought under his notice, if with less method. Neither at home nor at school is much effort made to set before the child the abundant feast of eyes which his needs demand. A child learns from things. We older people, partly because of our maturer intellect, partly because of our defective education, get most of our knowledge through the medium of words. We set the child to learn in the same way and find him dull and slow. Why? Because it is only with a few words in common use that he associates a definite meaning. All the rest are no more to him than the vocables of a foreign tongue. But set him face to face with a thing, and he is twenty times as quick as you are in knowing all about it. Knowledge of things flies to the mind of a child as steel filings to a magnet. And, paripasu with his knowledge of things, his vocabulary grows. For it is a law of the mind that what we know, we struggle to express. This fact accounts for many of the apparently aimless questions of children. They are in quest, not of knowledge, but of words to express the knowledge they have. Now consider what a culpable waste of intellectual energy it is to shut up a child blessed with this inordinate capacity for seeing and knowing within the four walls of a house or the dreary streets of a town. Or suppose that he is let run loose in the country, where there is plenty to see. It is nearly as bad to let this great faculty of the child's dissipate itself in random observations for want of method and direction. The sense of beauty comes from early contact with nature. There is no end to the store of common information, got in such a way that it will never be forgotten, with which an intelligent child may furnish himself before he begins his school career. The boy who can tell you offhand where to find each of the half-dozen most graceful birches, the three or four finest ash trees in the neighborhood of his home, has chances in life a dozen to one compared with the lower, slower intelligence that does not know an elm from an oak. Not merely chances of success, but chances of a larger, happier life, for it is curious how certain feelings are linked with the mere observation of nature and natural objects. The aesthetic sense of the beautiful, says Dr. Carpenter, of the sublime, of the harmonious, seems in its most elementary form to connect itself immediately with the perceptions which arise out of the contact of our minds with external nature. While he quotes Dr. Morell, who says still more forcibly that all those who have shown a remarkable appreciation of form and beauty date their first impressions from a period lying far behind the existence of definite ideas or verbal instruction. 
most grown men lose the habit of observation. Thus we owe something to Mr. Evans for taking his little daughter, Marianne, with him on long business drives among the pleasant Warwickshire lanes. The little girl stood up between her father's knees, seeing much and saying little, and the outcome was the scenes of rural life in Adam Bede and the Mill on the Floss. Wordsworth, reared amongst the mountains, becomes a very prophet of nature, while Tennyson draws endless imagery from the levels of the eastern counties where he was brought up. Little David Copperfield was a very observant child, though, says he, I think the memory of most of us can go farther back into such times than many of us suppose. Just as I believe the power of observation in numbers of very young children to be quite wonderful for its closeness and accuracy. Indeed, I think that most grown men who are remarkable in this respect may with greater propriety be said not to have lost the faculty than to have acquired it. The rather, as I generally observe such men to retain a certain freshness and gentleness and capacity of being pleased, which are also an inheritance they have preserved from their childhood. In which remark Dickens makes his hero talk sound philosophy as well as kindly sense. End of part two, chapter seven. Read by Julia Ward.